Well, if you've not been with us through the weekend or this morning uh, for Sunday school, we are thankful to continue um, through uh, the last uh, several sessions we've had, three yesterday and one Friday night, looking at the first few book, uh, verses of the book of James. Uh, Pastor Robert Elliott from the Reformed Baptist Church of Riverside, California, has been with us uh, for our family camp, and we are thankful to continue on uh, this morning looking in uh, James chapter 1. So, brother, please come and and share with us from God's Word. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you. And uh, as Pastor Nick said, we've had a good weekend uh, over at the the conference center, and uh, it's my prayer today that as we would continue on in James chapter 1, that the Lord would really meet with us and uh, speak to us and encourage our hearts. We're going to read together as we have been from James chapter 1. This time we're actually going to be reading down to uh, the end of uh, verse, verse 15. James chapter 1, hear the word of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have It's perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away (coughs) by his own desires and enticed. Then, when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I realize there are some who haven't been with us over the last four sessions, and I just want to try and bring you up to speed a little bit quickly so that you know where we're at and what is going on. This morning, our text will actually be verses 9 through 12. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning, and then this evening we'll move on and do verses 13 through 15. But what we have been noticing up until now, is that James is writing a letter. The the Apostle James is writing to people that he knew well, very likely people that he used to pastor in the city of Jerusalem. But they're not there now. They've been scattered. The Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome, and while that happened, Jews all over the Roman Empire were basically sent into the countryside. They were sent from their homes, and certainly in the city of Jerusalem, there was a a, a real ruckus, and Christians who were there were experiencing Jewish persecution, and then over and above that, 
the Jews were being persecuted by the Roman emperor Claudius, and the Jews were then turning on the Christians in Rome, in Jerusalem. It was just one of those domino effects. Claudius was hassling the Jews. The Jews began to hassle the Christians, and the whole of the the Roman Empire was in a bit of a turmoil. There was a very selfish and greedy and wicked emperor on the throne, and it was a period of, of unrest, a period in which people's lives were being brought into upheaval. And so James is writing to the Christians that are scattered. He knows many of them personally, and those he doesn't know personally He knows their culture, he knows their background, because they are Jewish Christians to whom this epistle has been written. Indeed, he writes to them and he tells them in a very pastoral way that the difficulties that they're experiencing and the pain that they're encountering is all designed by God to achieve a great end. It might seem like it's a horrible, bullying emperor, It might seem that it's disturbed Jewish authorities that are causing this trouble in their lives. But the fact of the matter is, it's God that's behind the scenes working and planning events so that they would be made perfect, so that they would be completed, so that things that are in their lives would be burned out of their lives and elements of growth that they need to accomplish would come to pass in their life. One commentator, Alex Matoyer, writes, the great goal of the Christian life is Christian maturity. Towards this, we are to bend all our efforts. Life's pleasant paths are made all the sweeter as we keep in mind that they lead to this great end. Life's grim moments are to be endured patiently, remembering that patience and persistence turns sorrows into stepping stones. And in a sense, that's what James is seeking to get across to these Christians. These sorrows are stepping stones to Christian maturity. They're they're ways in which God works in your life to humble you and prune you and, and shape you and sanctify you. What the troubled Christian needs is not relief from the trouble so much as he needs wisdom, as James points out in verse 5, to know how to have a correct perspective of that trouble. Of course, the first thing that comes into our minds when we go through any kind of trial is, when is this going to end? And James is trying to teach these Christians that the first thing they should be thinking about is, how can I benefit from this? How can I view this trouble from God's perspective? How can I grow in the midst of this trial, knowing that God loves us and He won't test us any more than we are able? He's not, he doesn't have the intention of trying to crush us and, and bring us down. And, and, and when He sees fit, the trial will end. Absolutely. He's not going to bring us to the point that the the bridge collapses. If you remember, we used that illustration uh, just the other night. Instead, he's bringing us to the point of molding and shaping us. In fact, we know God's will is to actually give us the perspective that he has. So we're told to ask. Just ask. But as you ask, as we thought last night, be sure that you really are seeking God in faith and that you really do want His wisdom and the benefits from the trials. Be sure that you're not just pretending that you want it. Don't be an unstable individual. Don't be one who's all wobbly and all over the place. Rather be someone in the midst of trials who genuinely says, Lord, I need you to show me how I can grow, how to understand these trials, and how I can benefit. Be one who has a focused heart and a focused mind to bring glory to God in the middle of it. Now, that's roughly where we've come to as we've looked at James chapter 1 thus far. 
But as we come to chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we come to words that seem so random. They seem so kind of out of place almost. And we must understand what James's intention is in writing about the poor man and the rich man. And, and in writing in such a, a, a kind of unusual way about the poor man and the rich man. What is actually happening here is James is giving us an illustration of all that he has been talking about. He's, he speaks about the poor man and the rich man to illustrate for us what it looks like and, and how we should react. For example, if you're a rich man, for example, if you're a poor man and you're seeking God's perspective and God's wisdom in your life. And so there's a real-life illustration, if you like. And then in verse 12, he moves on to bring comfort and encouragement by reminding those who are going through this trial, those who are living in this very disjointed way throughout the Roman Empire, he reminds them, look, there's coming a better day. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the illustration of what he's been talking about and the comfort that he gives, the encouragement that he gives to the Christians to whom he's writing. So let's look at it first of all in verses 9 through 11. As he paints an illustration, he speaks to us of the rich and of the poor. One thing that James highlights several times throughout his epistle is the issue of rich men and poor men. It seems to be something that's on his mind on several occasions. He's the one in chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 who speaks about the poor man who comes into the church on the same Sunday as a rich man visits. And he says to the church there, he says, look, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the, the man with the gold rings wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or even sit here at my footstool. He says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so you see that James highlights the rich and the poor again, but then he does it once again. And it's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And you can read that in your own time. But essentially what he does there is he says to the, poor, to the rich men, you who are rich, who are oppressing the poor, who are manipulating the poor, who are seeking to gain advantage over the poor, using your position and your social standing and your money to keep poor men down while you make yourself richer at their expense in an unfair way. He says, you watch out. You're going to suffer. You're going to perish. And again, he's talking to those who are professing Christians. This whole book is to professing Christians. It's not to the, the rich men up at Microsoft or at Apple or at Google or the rich men at Amazon. He's not speaking about those kinds of guys. He's speaking about the rich men who are within the assembly, who are professing to be Christians, who act in a very bullying and pushy and oppressive manner to those who aren't so rich. So several times James is the, the apostle who highlights the issue of rich and poor. And that's what he does here. And he uses the rich and the poor as illustrations of what he's talking about by way of those who take God's perspective on their life, on where they are in their situation. The poor man is to remember that he's rich. That's what James says here. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And the rich man is to remember that he is nothing. And James is using this as illustrations of having God's perspective on things in life. Now, it sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? You poor men remember your exaltation. 
You rich man, you rich men, you should glory in your humiliation. It sounds like a riddle, and in fact, it kind of is. In fact, I believe it's a, it's a paradoxical statement. A paradox is a statement that seems to contradict itself, but nevertheless, it's true. <clears throat> we use paradoxes quite regularly. And at times we don't even realize we're using them. For example, we might say, nobody is going to go into a restaurant that's crowded. Now, that's true, isn't it? You look in the door of a restaurant and it's crowded and you say, nobody's going to go into a crowded restaurant. It's true, but it's also paradoxical because the fact is the restaurant's crowded. There's lots of people in it, so somebody did go into it. But we use that type of expression or we might say something like, don't go near the water until you've learned to swim. And you think about it and you go, well, how am I ever going to learn to swim if I can't go near the water? It's a paradoxical statement. It's a, it, it, says a, it states a truth, but it sounds contradictory. It's a kind of weird statement. And James is using paradoxes here. They're sort of weird statements, and they are kind of out of place, it seems, unless you understand that he's simply trying to illustrate all that we've talked about over these last number of sessions. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. He speaks about the poor brother and the rich brother. Verse 10 doesn't actually state that the rich is a brother, but the context is very clear that he's speaking about different types of people to whom he's writing, even within the, 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 the assemblies of God's people. Some commentators, especially some of the older commentators, think that the poor is the Christian and the rich is the non-Christian. One commentator actually said, James would not approve of any rich man at all. And I don't know where he got that from, but that's what one commentator actually stated. The fact is the early church had some rich men in it. There were some rich men in the church. Riches are never seen in the Bible, never presented in the Bible as being intrinsically evil. It's the love of riches. It's the lust of money that is the root of all evil. And it seems quite ridiculous to assume that James is using the term rich to denote the ungodly or the non-Christian. He's not. He's, he's trying to help the poor in the, in the churches to whom he's writing and the rich in the churches to whom he's writing to have a godly perspective of their situation in life. They're told to glory or to boast in their situation. The poor is to glory or boast in his riches, and the rich are to glory in their humiliation. To boast here is to find, as it were, reason to be joyful. You poor people, find some reason to be joyful in your situation. You rich people, you have actually to find something joyful, but not in your riches, rather in your true state and in the reality of your standing before God. Undoubtedly, many of James' readers would have been from the poorer classes. Many of the trials that the scattered Christians were facing would have been in the realm of the hardships that they were encountering, the difficulty of just living Remember, they had lost their jobs, they had lost their homes, many had lost their families, they had lost the contacts that they had in life. They were isolated, pretty much rejected. And so most of the readers would likely have been of the lower social order. Life was hard for them. Indeed, not many of the high and lofty and noble were called, but some, but not many, Regularly, God would call the foolish things of the world to confound those that are wise, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, the base things of the world to indeed outshine those things that, that the world could offer. It appears that, yes, there were some rich, but most were poor. 
In fact, the rich within the church would have their own troubles. When someone's poor in this world's goods, they can't imagine that to have riches would in itself be troublesome. But the truth is, the rich have their problems. There are trials and there are anxieties that come to the rich men while there are different types of troubles that they have from the poor men. The fact is the rich have their own concerns and their very real concerns. I've known a few rich folks to be living basically on the basis of how much diazepam uh, they take or how much Prozac they can pop. They might be rich but they're full of anxiety, or they're deep in depression, and they've got all kinds of troubles related to their riches. We know that many of the rich and famous, many of the the superstars of this world are overcome with distress, are are living with fear and anxiety. They live lives that are, are marked by misery and sorrow. Many of them take their life, some accidentally, because they're, they're popping so many pills, such as Michael Jackson. Others take their lives deliberately, such as Robin Williams. Many others have died, perhaps accidentally, sometimes deliberately, but because they're, they're living with sadness and sorrow and, and, and an unfulfilled life, Michael Hutchin, Elvis Presley, Amy Winehouse, Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, names that we all know, lives that when they were here, they were as bright stars in this world, and yet they had money, they had fame, they had fortune, but they were miserable. They were sad. And James, he knows that indeed this is the case. He's not here just concerned for the poor, that they be helped in a pastoral way. The rich, they need help as well to have a godly perspective on their life. Yes, God does normally call the weak and lowly, but sometimes He's pleased to call the rich and the upper classes to Himself as well. And they need to know what it is in the midst of trials to have a godly perspective also. It's all about perspective. And wisdom to a large degree, as we have said before, is that ability to see eternal realities in the midst of the current situation in which we find ourselves. So what is this riddle all about? What is verses 9 through 11 really saying? The poor man is to remember that while this world offers him very little, while he has just a, a little tiny bit of this world's goods and life is tough, he has something that is very precious nevertheless. Namely, he has the riches of Christ Jesus. He is to glory in his exaltation. He is to glory in the fact that God has lifted him up to heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has to recognize that, yes, I might be struggling financially, or I may be having difficulty physically as a result of a poor diet and, and poor health care. And life might be very tough, but in Christ I have everything. He's to look at life not from a worldly perspective, but he's to consider the spiritual realities. And he's to rejoice in what he has in Jesus Christ. The man who has nothing will be easily tempted to think that the answer to his problems would be to win the lottery or to have a great inheritance sent his way. The man who has nothing can easily be tempted to think the solution is maybe go and rob a bank and make myself rich instantly. Scheme and con and and steal and thieve. The man who's nothing might think, if only I can sort my troubles out financially, then my troubles will be sorted. And he's reminded in this text that he needs to focus on what he has. And what he has is a great treasure 
even in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is, he's to keep in mind the Lord's provision for his soul. Think about it. Consider it. Reckon it. Actually, use your mind to ponder what the Lord has given to you and boast in it. Rejoice in it. Find a reason for joy in Christ. 1 Timothy 6 and 9 warns that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in perdition and destruction. And Paul had seen it again and again. And many of us have seen it also in life. We've seen people who have hankered after life's pleasures and and the things that the world can offer them. And they've been willing to sell their soul in order that they might have things that will temporarily please them. And all they've done is drown themselves in destruction. All they've done is overwhelm themselves with perdition and ruin. And Paul saw it, and we can see it as well as we open our eyes. But the poor man is to bear in mind that the answer to life's trials are in fact not a supply of good things that money can buy, but rather the answer is in the gospel which he has. And so James is giving an illustration. He's he's been saying, look, have a godly perspective. Think in a godly way about the trials of life. Don't think in a worldly way. You poor men, for example, think about what you have. Think about what God has done. Think about the exaltation that you have enjoyed of being taken from being a child of darkness and being made a son of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What greater position, what more lofty exaltation can you enjoy? That's what he's talking about. That's an example of what he's meaning. But what about the rich man part? That sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? You glory in your humiliation. Well, the rich man is, on the other hand, to bear in mind that while he has much of this world's treasures, he himself is a spiritual pauper. And while the money can buy him merit in the eyes of his fellow man, it cannot buy him merit in the eyes of a holy God. In fact, Scripture often presents riches as holding men back from God rather than being a spiritual advantage. They're a spiritual disadvantage. And the rich brother, he needs to feel the reality that at the cross, he stands on level ground with the poor. Indeed, one of the things that James highlights and that the rich man needs to keep in perspective is the truth of the fading and ultimately disappearing nature of riches. You rich men, look at your life in a godly way. You need to remember that as the flower fades in the field, and as that flower passes away, verse 10, no sooner, verse 11, has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass and the flower falls And its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. What a picture. The flower fades. The grass withers. Indeed, so will your riches. They disappear. They are fleeting. How many have known loads of cash, and then a year or so, suddenly, they have been in need? I've seen that Even folks that have come through our church over the years, some have come in with a bit of money, fanciest car in the parking lot, and then events and circumstances and trials come, and they're literally left in the lower bracket of the financially well-off in our congregation. And it's quite something to see. It's hard for individuals to bear. And it happens often. It certainly happened a lot about 2009 when men's businesses were just soaring in Southern California and kaboom, they were down and they lost everything. It's hard to watch. But it's a reminder of the fact that James is is communicating here. It's something that happens all the time. The rich 
they're strong and tall and flowery and fancy. And then trials can easily come into their life, and they fade and they wither, and there's nothing there. Now, of course, the poor man is transient too, of course. It's not just the rich man that is strong one day and weak the next. The poor man, he is here today and gone tomorrow also. His life also flies by, as does a rich man's life. But James is pressing the rich here to remember this because it is easier for a poor man to look forward to the day when he'll be released from his shackles and his burden than it is for a rich man. It's usually more tempting for the one with riches to be enjoying life and losing the sense of its temporal, of its temporal state. Richer, riches offer the allure of security. They offer the appearance of stability. They offer the promise of happiness and hope and ease. But the reality is they can be gone before we know it, and one day they all will be gone, for this is all going to burn. The rich man's life will also be over before he knows it. And James is reminding them that, oh, if you think that you're clever because you've diversified your savings and you're now in a bomb-proof situation, you need to think again. God can have them all removed tomorrow, and one day they all will be removed anyway. You'll take nothing with you. This night, as the parable, the story says to the rich man, your life will be required of you. So the rich are to glory glory in the fact that they have been brought low, in the fact that they have, they have been taught through the gospel and in the Word of God the lesson that the things of this life are transient, the things of this life are in a sense meaningless and empty when it comes to the big perspective, when it comes to God's view and, and, and a wise view of life's situation. They're to glory in the fact that they have seen their need of Christ and discovered their need of grace. They're not to glory in the fact that they materially have a lot. They're not to glory in the fact that they're stable and solid people. They're to glory in the fact that they have been humbled and that they see the, the, the temporary nature of all the things that are around them. I love the biblical use of the flowers fading. Coming now from Southern California, it's something that's so vivid to, to me. We get some rain usually about November, and then the real rainy season kicks in. Well, when I say real rainy season, you know, our, our, our real rainy season, it kicks in about maybe January and February. So from November through to maybe the beginning of March, there's some rain, and where we live, you just can see this beautiful green, wonderful sight in front of you. And, and, and the little desert flowers pop out and they're wonderful shades of orange and yellow. And it's absolutely stunning for that short period of the year. And then suddenly, the end of April, the beginning of May, kaboom! The sun in all of its power comes out. And literally, in days... What took months to grow and develop and mature, in days, it's absolutely, literally gone. It's, it's just vanished, and it's now brown, and it's dry, and it's barren. And there's a real sense in which I get the picture of what James is seeing just by living in California. When I lived in Scotland, I couldn't really understand this. I, I, I didn't have a visual picture, but now I do. The bottom line is, that whether rich or poor, whether struggling or whether one who is prospering in this scene of time, we must keep in mind spiritual realities and see life from God's perspective. And that's an illustration that James uses in order to help us understand practically what it looks like as far as all of his advice is concerned in the earlier verses. And then he moves on as a good pastor does and seeks to bring some comfort. And he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown 
of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Blessed is the man who who stands steadfast in his trials, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life. There's two things here. There's, first of all, a call to endure. There's There's a sense in which James is exhorting us, even in this encouragement, to to endure and to remain steadfast in trials. We might easily think that the truly blessed man is one who escapes trials. The truly blessed man is the one who avoids difficulties. But the truth is, the truly blessed man or woman is the one who endures who remains steadfast in trials. So, Christian, don't pray, Lord, help me to duck and dive and dodge all the trials that might come my way, because that prayer isn't going to be answered. Let me tell you that right now. Because it's not God's will that you should avoid trials. It is God's will that you should endure trials, that you should go through them and be steadfast in them and be victorious and faithful. This statement is actually presented almost like a, a beatitude. Blessed is the man who endures his trials. It's kind of like the beatitudes that Jesus spoke, isn't it? It's a statement, it's not a hopeful suggestion. It's not a wish. It's not James here saying, may the one who endures temptations be blessed. I hope that those who stand steadfast in temptations will be blessed. It's not that kind of desire that is expressed. It's rather a statement of fact. It is a a statement that describes how God has ordered things. Those who endure temptation will be blessed. Those who stand in the midst of their trials and and cry for that wisdom from above and see things from God's perspective and persevere through those trials, they will be blessed. What a beautiful word to be blessed. Sometimes we resist the word happy. And the reason I think I resist it is because of the the root of the word. Happy comes from words such as happenstance or, or to happen. And it suggests chance. It suggests, if you like, luck, those particular words. And, and, and I resist the word happy at times because it suggests that you feel joyful because of circumstances that come that, that have just by luck come or, or by happenstance come. And so perhaps the word blessed is, is really the best word, isn't it? Because that includes the fact and it, it connotes the idea of a divine influence. It makes us think, yes, of our circumstances, but of a hand that is at work behind our circumstances. We are blessed because God is at work in our lives, and there's joy, and there's satisfaction. And James exhorts the Christians to endure, to stand, because that will bring blessing, the smile of God upon one's life. And he reminds us what the ultimate blessing is. In the second place here in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life. When he stands the test. The Greek here, doikimos, refers to the proving of a coin. When when he stands the test of being, being shown to be the real thing, he will receive the crown of life. The idea is that the genuineness of the Christian is is manifest, is displayed as they go through trials. 
when something goes to Christie's auction house, be it a vase or be it a painting, there's all kinds of people get their eyes and their hands and their tools on it before it actually sits on the auction, the auctioneer's podium. There's all kinds of experts called in. Is this an authentic painting? Is this really painted by the one whose name is in the bottom corner? Is, is, is this really genuine? And, and all of the tests that go on, eyes of experts, even there are some scientists that are employed by Christie's in order to look at it and maybe take tiny, tiny samples of the paint in order to ensure that this isn't something that was slapped up the other day in somebody's basement, but this is genuinely uh, the, the, the work of a great artist in the 14th or 15th century. And all kinds of examinations go on, and only after a thorough testing will that piece be put on the auctioneer's stand and set before the world. Only once it's been proved to be real. And that's the word that's used here when James says, when he has been approved or when he has stood the test. As he goes through or she goes through the trial, there's a sense in which there's, a, there's an authenticizing going on. And trials do this for the believer. When we go through hardships and we're crying to God for His wisdom and His perspective, that we might see our lives in a godly way, in a spiritual way, rather than a carnal way, in a way that is dominated by our emotions and by our lusts and desires, when we get that kind of perspective, we are proven to be the genuine article. So just because you're going through trials doesn't mean you're not a Christian. No, Christians go through trials. Just because you go from one trial to another doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. No, God is showing. God is manifesting. God is giving you opportunity to demonstrate the reality of your faith. And ultimately, He's going to reward you. He might not reward you by saying, okay, you've done so well through this trial. For the next 10 years, you're going to have an easy time of it. That's not how God works. We think that way. And, and sometimes because we project our thoughts onto God, then we get disappointed in the Lord. We need to realize that His ways are above our ways and His, His thoughts are above our thoughts. And it's not a case of, well, you've behaved so well in this trial. You deserve the rest of your life to go scot-free from trials. Some of us go from trial to trial. Some of us go from difficulty to difficulty, from one situation that is painful to another situation that is grievous. And that seems to be how we live our lives. And do not think for one minute that that means that God has abandoned us or that God doesn't like us or that God is punishing us. Instead, we need to have a godly perspective and understand that God is using these trials to refine us and to purge us, and to grow us, and to enable us to bring Him glory, and to enable us to shine for Him in a dark world. So the reward isn't necessarily temporal. The, war, the reward isn't necessarily in the here and now, in a visible, de demonstrable way. The reward ultimately is you shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. The crown of life. What is that? Is it worth it? Is it worth enduring these trials and in the midst of them seeking God's face and seeking Christ's glory? Is it worth it? At the end of the day, you're going to get the crown of life. What is that? You need to know it's worth it, don't you? It is a New Testament metaphor for eternal life, which means heaven, which means the reward for the faithful. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul takes up the, 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 the illustration, the picture 
of the athletics field, what would actually grow into the Olympic Games in actual fact, even in ancient Greece? And he says in verse 25 there of 1 Corinthians 9 that everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. He says, you know, these guys that are into athletics, that are into running, they're temperate in all things. In other words, they're really careful how they live, really careful. They watch their diet, right? They, they make sure that they get the right kind of, the right amount of sleep. They make sure they're looking after themselves. And, and every day, every day they're thinking about their perishable crown. Now, what Paul is thinking about was not a gold medal, but an olive wreath. A little woven crown of olive leaves. Think about it. I quite fancy a gold medal. But the thought of a an olive wreath, I can take it or leave it, you know, as in its intrinsic value, what it's actually worth. An olive wreath. Somebody goes out, takes a branch, an olive branch, strips the leaves, and just weaves them together, and they got a wee tiny half crown. A wee tiny half crown. Didn't even go right round their head. Just a wee bit for the top of their head. And I guarantee after three or four days, it would go all crusty. We've got lots of olive, le olive trees around us in Southern California. And when the leaves fall off, yeah, they're kind of waxy and bendy at first. Give them a few days and you play with one that goes snap. It's worthless. And Paul is saying, look, or James is saying, or, no, it's Paul, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 9. He's saying, look, these athletes, they discipline themselves. They train themselves. They focus. They give energy to, time to, dedication to. They're disciplined whether it be the, the shot part or the discus, or whether it be the, the hundred meters. And all they get at the end of the day is the wee olive leaf, and it's perishable. You better believe it's perishable. But we, we, we will receive the crown of life. It's not a wee wreath that we stick in our head. It's not even a wee crown of gold that we stick in our head. It's more than that. It's eternal life. It's to rule and to reign and to live alongside the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Really to live. It's not to sit in a cloud and play a harp. How unattractive would that be? Forever and ever. It's not even to come and to sit in a worship service and to have to be quiet for eternity. Kids, can you imagine such a thing? That would make boys and girls never want to be saved. That's not the crown of life. That's not the promise that Jesus offers to his people. That's not what God gives to those who love him. Instead, they will live, really live, in renewed, rejuvenated bodies, in a renewed and rejuvenated earth, where God himself is the light where there is no temple, for the Lord himself abides with his people, and he is the temple. And all that we will do, we will do sinlessly. We will have relationships and friendships and occupations and activities and, yeah, dare I say, recreation. And we will enjoy the nature of that new earth and the new heavens. We will enjoy its, its beauty. You think it's nice to go a hike up a mountain Today, wait till you see the rejuvenated earth where sin has not contaminated and where the fall has not affected. The crown of life, what is it? It's to live in that paradise that has been lost for just now, but which will be regained. And it's to live for Christ, for His glory, without sin hindering us, or ailments affecting us, or trials. Listen, no trials. How can we have trials in such a place? No trials. Why will we not need trials? Because when we see him, we will be like him. We're not going to need sanctified. We're not going to need the, the dross burned out and, and new and greater graces put in. We're going to be like Jesus. In other words, sinless. And the apostle is saying, look, Endure your trials. 
Just now, in this present scene of time, when you go through trials, seek God. Don't run away from God. Don't get bitter against God. Don't start wagging your finger in God's face. Who do you think you are? No. Seek God. Love God. Desire above all to have his view of your life and where you're at, whether you're poor, whether you're rich. See life from a spiritual perspective so that you can receive the promise of the crown of life forever, ever being with the Lord. It's so worth it, Christian. It's so worth it. And in the midst of all of that, even now we get to glorify God and enjoy Him as we go through this sometimes sad, difficult path. What a wonderful way James reasons and argues, isn't it? He's brought us to a good place. It's worth it. Stick in there and grow rather than getting tired and weary. May God encourage our hearts for His name's sake. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your precious Word. Thank You for the way James, in a practical way, has sought to illustrate and help us to understand what it means to seek your wisdom, to have your perspective in our lives, wherever we might be. And Lord, thank you for the encouragement that he gives to our souls, that we truly will receive the crown of life that God has promised. And Lord, you are not slack concerning your promises. Even as we thought of the other day, you love to give. And Lord, you are kind and you give lavishly and without reproach. Help us, Lord. Some are in trials, some are in difficulties. Some feel oppressed even by the world around them. Lord, we ask that you would help your people to have a godly perspective, an eternal dimension to their thinking and their acting, so that Jesus Christ would be praised. In his name we ask it. Amen.